Okay. Um, so first, I'm just kind of tell me kind of how you got involved in in fighting fires out west. Out uh, west or oh, originally? Yeah, let's yeah. start with originally. Okay. And then, and then uh, proceed. <laughs> all right. I uh, I grew up in Exeter. Uh, it's in the southeast part of the state, and it was literally the edge of town back then. It was uh, my grandmother's house and then a river and then woods for about three three or four miles until the town of Brentwood. And uh, we used to play in those woods. That's how I got my interest in forestry and stuff. And there was little hills. I mean, you know, change in elevation of maybe 10 or 15 feet, nothing mm -hmm. like around here. And uh, in the late winter, early spring, when the snow wasn't any good for sliding or skiing or skating, you know, everything was rotted, you know, the snow was kind of rotted, we would uh, each, my brothers and friends, would each claim one of these little hills and then make a, a campfire ring, you know, because the snow was still on the ground. And on Saturdays, for our fun, we'd go out at uh, lunchtime, ho cook hot dogs, have hostess <laughs> cupcakes and yeah. Jick Jack soda and stuff, and it's, we'd spend our day. And um, so one spring we were playing baseball in our in the backyard, or and uh, we haven't had a big backyard there in my grandpa's old farm. And uh, a couple of friends went walking through on a Sunday afternoon, and while we were playing, and about two hours later they came walking back, and you know, obviously they'd been out across the river and mm -hmm. uh, visiting one of those sites there. And uh, the next day, uh, Monday, it was a very, I remember quite a very breezy day, and I just had gotten home from school, and the neighbor comes over and knocks on the door rather frantically, and she asks my mother, come out, what do you think of this? And look out there, and this pillar of smoke coming from my hill. I recognized <laughs> my hill because there was a very odd-shaped tree on it. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, they, I said, well, it's, it's a brush fire, and so they called the fire department. They show up, and they wanted to know, well, how do we get there? You know, they wanted to drive through mm -hmm. it. So where I grew up in Exeter, there was uh, mostly all relatives living around there. Uh, jokingly, well, it was the, the Polish end of town, I guess is the best way to say that. And uh, my grandmother's cousin lived next door, and he's, you know, I thought he was very old. I guess he must have been my age you know, now. But anyway, so he said, well, there's a road that comes down from, from the north there on Bruntwood Road, and that's the closest way. And I had been out there, and it had all grown in. And I said, no, it's all grown in. you got to come up from the south from Front Street where the brickyard was, and they, uh, and they had got the road approved there. He said, well, no, it's a lot shorter coming from Bruntwood. I said, I know that, but it's... You know, you got to come in. Got to come in from the south because that rut road's all going. And my mother's going, "You be quiet. You don't know. He <laughs> knows you." So they're going to listen to an eleven-year-old kid or, or this guy who lives there. So they listen to him, and off they went up to Brentwood Road uh, to the north. And by one of the rare occasions that my father came home from work early, he said, "You know, saw people milling around. What's going on?" I said, "Brush fire across the river." And he goes, would you want to get there? And I said, yeah. He said, lead me. Now, that was the first time in my life my father had said, lead me. All right, <laughs> so, so I said, okay. We went down across the river on this fallen tree and up the path and right to the site. He says, where are the firemen? And I said, well, they're coming in from Brentwood Road, but it's all grown in. He said, well, you go find the firemen. I'll, I'll work on the fire. It was burning slowly on top of the hill, burning down. So I went, you know, I knew exactly where they were going to get lost because it was all grown in. So I went out there and... I started hollering and over here, over here, and then and I hear this crashing through the bushes and they come and they grab me. Did you start this fire? I said, no, I was trying to tell you how to get here. 
So I brought him to the fire because they all knew my father, you know. Yeah. So it's like, okay. And I said, this is how you come in. Uh, so, so they said, okay, uh, you know, give us the directions. So, so now here I am after leading my father for the first time. I'm telling the firemen, giving the firemen directions how to get up here, and they're relaying my information over the radio. When you're 11 year old, that's it's pretty <laughs> impressive, yeah. you know. So they finally showed up with their little fire truck and they put the uh, Indian tank on my back, the five-gallon thing, and, and uh, you know, I helped put out the fire. And uh, I had uh, sneakers, dungarees, and a T-shirt, you know, you know, which, you know, if they did that now with an 11-year-old kid, they'd probably be arrested for child endangerment. But back then, they let the kids, you know, help with the brush fires. And uh, so... So that, that left quite an impression on me. One, you know, leading my father for the first time, and two, telling the firemen, you know, giving the firemen directions, and them listening to me, you know. And so, so and, and had a few other uh, fires in, in the neighborhood. Uh, same person was involved, uh, and I uh, helped work those and stuff. And, and, you know, and then I got to UNH, uh, as part of the forestry curriculum was a wildland, they called firefighting, and now it's called fire management. And I was working construction, so I had a hard hat and gloves, and so I was, and I had fire experience, so I was kind of made the crew boss yeah. when we did the f fire training at, at, at college. And uh, so this uh, year after I graduated, I was working for the Boy Scouts uh, as, as their forester up in Gilmington. They got a 3,100-acre reservation, which is where I was today, marking timber and teaching forestry merit batch. And the staff, they used to teach the staff a full day of uh, wildland firefighting, uh, forest firefighting, in case it was a fire in the camp. Now they do stuff like, you know, um, you know harassment, liabilities, you know, <laughs> everything but firefighting. So... They figured they'd leave that to the professionals. But uh, when they had the fire state come in to teach that course, I helped teach it. And they said, oh, you ought to try getting on the on the fire crew and take the the fitness test, which was a step test. And uh, and I said, yeah, 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 no problem. That sounds interesting. And so I took the fitness test and passed. And then a week later they called, and that was in 1977. And I, that was my first trip out west and it was just a fascinating experience you know it was a marble cone fire which at that point had reached uh, well eventually reached a hundred thousand acres which you know was unheard of back then now it's unfortunately very common uh, due to climate change so it was uh, like i said an incredible experience and so i've kind of been doing it ever since yeah. <laughs> so um but it's uh so so that's how I got on in the Western Fire Crews, and I eventually got a job from the Boy Scouts working for the state, which got me more involved in the in their fire program. So I've gone out. I've been on twenty four crews, um, uh, you know, Quebec, Florida, Tennessee, Alaska, uh, Minnesota, and then most of the states in the far west. Yeah. So how long normally are the trips that you have to go out on? Well, you figure there's going to be, uh, you sign up for two weeks of work and then one, uh, one or two days of travel on either end. So it's, it's they, they say 14 to 16 days, but I usually figure 16 to 18 days. But sometimes the trips are shorter. You know, because the fires go out or the weather changes that they hadn't predicted and, and they're a little bit shorter. And on Monday you got back from two fires out in Colorado. Uh, have you been to any other states? Uh, this year or all time? Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, California, o Washington, Oregon, uh, Idaho, Montana, 
uh, Nevada, Utah, uh, Wyoming. I was in the Yellowstone fires in '88. Uh, what else in Colorado? So those uh, I, I've driven through Utah. I haven't fought fires in Utah, but you know, right on the border, and um, uh, New Mexico. I was in New Mexico, so I can say most of uh, the far western states. Since so in North Dakota, <coughs> in North Dakota, okay. Alaska, yeah. yeah. So what can you tell me about the groups that you go with? Where are those firefighters from? What are they like? How old are they? They they range. Uh, Anywhere, well, I mean, there was. We've had one one uh, firefighter was in his early seventies. Uh, we've had firefighters as young as eighteen. Uh, so it's anywhere between eighteen and, <laughs> and yeah. in the mid seventies. But it tends to form two groups. Um, you know, in their you know late teens, twenties, uh, you know, and then in the fifty to seventy age range, because that thirty forty year olds. And that's when they, you know, have kids that they're dealing with. You know, and that we, we tend to have there's a gap in that in that thirty and forty year age uh, range, uh, because in most at that you know people have family, the kids are in school and soccer and you know, yeah. whatever. So, so uh, I mean, the average in, in with the Connecticut crew, our average squad age I think was forty four, but we had you know. Old and young. I yeah. mean, there weren't. T- there was no one in between. Yeah. You know, so, uh, and it's it's. Uh, I, I guess it's a, a type personality. I, you know, they, they all. You know, a little bit of sense of adventure, a little bit of uh, uh, you know community responsibility, uh, a little bit of man versus nature. You know, mm-hmm. protecting the resource. You know, that type of thing. Um, for the most part, I mean, the uh, they always you know always seem to have fun. You know, everyone tends to get along. I mean, every once in a while, there's a, there's someone that you know the firefighting wasn't what they expected, mm-hmm. or or something comes up that really annoys them, or they're just not used to that situation. And we have been noticing that a little bit more with the younger firefighters. I mean, I grew up playing in the woods. Um, you know, using shovels and hammers and things like that, you know, using tools at a very early age. And we're seeing that, um, you know, the, 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 um, the younger kids don't have that good woods sense, you know, finding their way through the woods without a GPS. I mean, they, they, a lot of these, uh, the younger ones heavily rely on GPS because they're just not used to wandering around in the woods. Mm-hmm. And whereas I, being a forester, I you always know, made lookout because I could find my way around and you know place things in relation to other things, you know, versus someone who hasn't had a lot of hasn't had a lot of experience in the woods. Yeah. And on Monday, you came back with uh, another younger gentleman. Uh, yeah. He's from this area too. Yeah. Do you find that there's a lot of people from New Hampshire that go out, or is it a pretty select group? Well, there's uh, they. Ch- they changed the fitness test before it used to be a step test, uh, which is just a 16 and a half inch high step, and you in, in 90 beats per minute. You step up with one foot and then bring up the other foot, and then step down and then bring down the other foot. And then they take your pulse and then maybe age or something like that, and they come up with a score. Um, and we and back in the back in the early days, we pr- typically had 150 to 200 people on the call list, you know, which was a large number. Uh, days be- before the days of cell phones, so it was kind of hard to get a crew together. Uh, but uh, lately, it's been 50 to 60 people, 
and um, we get a lot of rookies that are interested, but uh, when it comes time to go to get on a crew, they seem to be busy. They don't realize the commitment that's involved. Um, so uh, the numbers are down, uh, and part of it is because the fitness just test has changed. We do the pack test, which you got to go three miles in under 45 minutes with a 45-pound pack, and uh, that has knocked out a lot of people. Uh, not physically knocked out, but I mean, yeah. uh, it, it, a lot of people it just can't do that. And um, in fact, they have an, you have to have an ambulance there when you do the pack test because people have died taking the pack test or had heart attacks or other medical issues. So. So it, it's more reflective of the type of work you're doing out there, um, but as a result, our, our, the state numbers are down. I mean, we're, we're trying to build the program up, but you know, the, the training requirements have greatly increased, and uh, uh, and uh, the commit, you know, the um, training requirements. You know, being able to commit yourself for three weeks is, or two to three weeks is becoming harder for a lot of people. Just you. Know, you know, I put myself through college working the summer now, you know, and uh, kids can't do that nowadays. Yeah. You know, college is too expensive. So they have jobs that they're, you know, trying to scratch, you know, every penny, or save every penny they can, and then the employers aren't always as willing to let them disappear for three weeks, yeah. you know. So, you know. so you've been doing this for over 40 years. Right. And you're how old now? 64. 64. Yeah. So what um, you mentioned, you know, the fires have become much more aggressive, much mm-hmm. bar- much larger swaths of the states. Um, what else have you seen change over the forty years? Well, uh, climate change is is is, make, is a, probably the biggest thing. Um, uh, it just the fires are getting bigger. The fire seasons are getting longer. Uh, there's a lot of trees dying out west. The beetle kills that the cold weather used to keep the insects in check that no longer do. Uh, it's, it's same with around here with the red pine scale and hemlock woolly adelgid. We're seeing mortality from these insects that the cold weather used to uh, uh, keep away. Uh, growing up, I played in the woods. We used to play army because you know, that was the thing to do. We weren't too far off of World War II. And, uh, in the bushes and the fields. In the first 25 years of my life, I had a total of two ticks. You know, now we get two ticks an hour, if not more. You know, so because the again the colder weather used to keep the populations down. So uh, seeing more tree mortality out west. Um, uh, the fires are getting bigger. The fire seasons are getting longer. Uh, the training requirements are getting much more extensive. The first time I went out west, the only thing you needed to do was pass the step test. Uh, and now that's, I think it's up to like 32 hours of uh, wildland fire training and then the, then the pack test and uh, rookie orientation if you haven't gone before and a safety refresher and stuff like that. So uh, the equipment um, and the shovels and Pulaski's haven't changed much, but uh, radio communications are, are improving. Um, the mapping, you know, GPS, you can map the fire, and, you know, I use that quite a bit on mm-hmm. the fires uh, now. It's about the only time I use GPS is when, when I'm doing fire stuff to either map acreage or map out the fire line or see where you are in you know, relation if you can't see, you know, through the horizon, see the horizon or, you know, get a good view of anything. It allows you to figure out where you are. Um, and, you know, like you see, you've got these maps that have been printed out, and so that 
So that that is that has improved, but still the fires are getting bigger, right. mainly due to, to the climate change. Yeah. Do you find that with the technology advancing, the climate change and the larger fires are kind of going head in head with that? You're having a harder time managing the fire, but you have all this all this technology. Um. No, the technology is not keeping up with the fires. I mean, right now, the, the, the nation's at what they call preparedness level five. Mm. Uh, there's a shortage of uh, firefighters. There's a shortage of equipment and stuff like that. So you can have a nice map of a fire, but if there's nobody on the ground to put a line around it, it's going to just keep getting, <laughs> keep getting yeah. bigger. So so the, uh, <coughs> the yeah, technology is nice, but it's still getting boots on the ground. Um, helicopters and planes in the air to, to drop the retardant and stuff. And uh, on, on this, on the uh, second fire there, the Green Mountain fire, we had two helicopters. They're trying to keep it small so they wouldn't need as many resources. And the helicopters is one thing that really helps the water drops. In the middle operation, they called and said, you know, one of your helicopters is leaving. You know, it has to go. Uh, the overhead convinced the there or you know the national people to let it stay at least for that shift and then, then it disappeared the next day so so uh, again you know, technology is nice but it's still there's still a shortage of resources mm -hmm. because we've had so many fires yeah. and then you throw in the flooding that we've had back east the same the last two weeks too you know Pennsylvania and stuff like that there's potential resources that could have gone west that now have to stay mm -hmm. east to d deal with those disasters, especially the uh, incident management teams you know, that deal, you know, the, the uh, management team is set up to handle different types of disasters, you know, just organizational, you know, the structure type thing. So you may have some very qualified people on the fire line, but now they're, they're tied up in the northeast because of the flooding in the Pennsylvania, Delaware area yeah. stuff, and, or then a hurricane hits. You get the same thing. People get you know, the incident management teams are, are drawn to the southeast you know, for the hurricanes, I and mean, that's happened a few times. Hmm. And out of all your twenty-four trips, what do you think was the most memorable one? There, well, the first one was you know the first impression that was probably the most uh, memorable. Um, but then uh, the Yellowstone fire. There's several of them. The first one in '77, the Yellowstone fire in '88, because that they there was just no matter what they did, the fire just did what it wanted to do. You know, one there was a fire line that went through this like met what they call a meadow, this field, natural field in the woods there. And one night we slept on one side of the fire line, and the fire jumped, and we had to sleep on the other side of the fire line. And uh, at night. I remember the um, laying there, you could see starlight, there was a thunderstorm out in the distance with lightning flashing, there was fire glowing in another direction, and then there was a full moon coming up, so we had all this natural illumination, it was a spectacular night, and we were kind of trapped there because it was too smoky to fly, you know, where the helicopters had to come from, it was too smoky to f that they could fly, so we just had to just sit there and let the fire burn around us. So that was memorable. Uh, in 2000 in Montana, uh, there, there was a fire that, uh, small fire they put us on, and they said, just go up the hill, you hit a trail, turn left, and that's where the fire is. And they had a local person from the uh, Forest Service District leading us, 
And I look down and I see these tre trees cut and I say, hey, we're on the trail. We should be turning left. And the uh, squad boss said, you know, he knows where he's going. He knows where he's going. I said, but fire is, you know, off, off behind us now to the left. No, don't worry. He knows where he's going. So he kept walking and walking on this trail and then it started getting late. And so he gave up and got dark. And it's like you could see the fire from the bus. I said, we're, we're way off. We've got to turn around. No. So the guy hollers, thinks he hears a reply. Turn, and, and so we started walking towards the sound, and we started dropping downhill into a canyon. Uh, he was chasing his echo. <laughs> and so we got there. Instead of getting there at 4.15 in the afternoon, we got there at 9.30 at night, and, and we couldn't do anything in the dark, and, and the fire blew up. So that, that kind of told me that whenever, it, that was memorable in that whenever I think there's a problem, I'm going to speak up. So then comes 2006, uh, we were in, a, in uh, Idaho, they flew us up to 8,800 feet, and a very high area to be working with, and so we, this, uh, we started cutting a fire line downhill, which was relatively easy. Then at the end of the day, we turned around to walk uphill, and there was no air. I, it just—it was weird feeling being that thin air in that elevation. So, so anyways, the next day they said oh, we'll go down to the safety zones in the saddle. And if you know what a saddle is, it's a little dip between two mountain summits there, which is where which will channel fire. So I said, we all got to thinking that's not a good place to have a safety zone. And we go down there in the area that we the guys said, just follow the edge of the burn. Well, the edge of the burn was very distinct at the top, but then it got very, what we call a dirty burn. It you know, wasn't a complete combustion. There was islands of stuff that hadn't burned, stuff that had partially burned. And the crew started going down too deep. And I said, uh, you know, we're going the wrong way. We've got to be up behind us there. And, and the squad boss kind of gave me the dirty eye and said, no, no, no. Don't want to use that. So we went a few more steps, and a tree torched out, you know, in one of these unburned islands, and the hair standing up on the back of my neck, which an old timer said is your, it's your body saying there's a problem. Listen to it. And so I uh, yelled out to the crew boss. I said, "We're going the wrong way. We should be going back up there." So he calls on the radio and says, "Give me a holler." And this time we heard a yell. Yeah. But the uh, squad boss was pretty upset with me for going over his head then. But it's like, and if it's my own safety, and sure enough, the fire did make a run. We had to run into that saddle safety zone, which wasn't big enough. So then we had to run a little bit further into an area that had burned the black, so it wouldn't burn again. And had the fire come up on both sides of us, we would have had to deploy the shelter, but uh, our fire shelter. But fortunately, it came up on one side first, and then it allowed us to run, and then it the whole area just just erupted by the time we got to the good safety zone back on top of the mountain which was an open ledge type thing and then the other fire was last year um, uh, as, as same thing no matter what we tried the fire just did what it wanted to do and there was a mix-up in communication and the division next to us blew up so we were running downhill as a fire was coming uphill, as we were running down the fire line, the fire was coming up, and that that got pretty dangerous. They were dropping water from helicopters right on us to kind of protect us. So, so that was a bit memorable too. So, uh, so even with good technology, I mean, it's you know humans <coughs> are in control of the fire, and you know humans sometimes make mistakes or miss things and things like that. So, so I've had some very memorable fires, you know, spectacular burns, but. Uh, 
but it's, it's those incidents that kind of stick to your mind, you know, yeah. like that. So. The first fire, I mean, you know, it was the first time any crew had gone out west to see that type of fire, so, you know, we didn't know if we were in danger or not, <laughs> you know, but uh, it, was, it was quite a quite an impression. And there was a, uh, one of my fellow UNH classmates was also on the crew who had, he was a half semester behind me because he had, uh, was in, uh, fought in Vietnam, and he was saying that, wow, this is very, as close as you can get to the military without fighting in the way that it was set up and the wandering around and camping out and stuff like that, and, uh, you know, with helicopters flying over, yeah. so he was, he was almost flashing back, you know, just, you know, again, the 77 of the war, Vietnam War was, you know, just over a few years, you know, prior to that, yeah. so three years prior to that, so it was still kind of in his, in his memory, too, and there were a lot of Vietnam vet, uh, as helicopter pilots on the fires back then. Not so much now as yeah. you know, that age, age is getting, you know, yeah. catching up to the vets, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So you just got back from the Green Mountain Fire and the Buttermilk Fire, both right. in Colorado. Tell me about those. Well, we, uh, I went with uh, the, the Colorado, I mean, Connecticut needed a couple people, and we had borrowed one of their guys last year, so I went with them. Uh, we get to the Buttermilk Fire, and um, let me get myself oriented here. Um, Assuming that's north, okay. And okay. So uh, this is a this is a canyon. Uh, this thing here is actually at the bottom of a canyon, and the fire. Uh, the first first day was you know the, the green areas there, and we got there, uh, um, and uh, that was. 725, 726. So we got there. Uh, this had burned up. This area here had burned w uh, before we got there, the day before we got there, this orange area. So when we got there, you know, it was burning now on top of the canyon. So they wanted us to secure the base. There were some farms that you can't see on the map. There's a, there's a ranch up here. So we made a contingency line and put hose on it because they did have a water supply from the ranch that if this fire continued to move up the canyon, we'd, we'd be able to stop it to protect the ranch. So that was our first first job there. And then uh, then the fire came up on top and was burning you know, in the yellow, and they decided to do a burnout along this road to you know kind of catch it in, in hopes that it wouldn't go down into this canyon. Because if it got into this canyon, it would make a run up and then hop into this area here, which is the Black Canyon National Park. So uh, so we went over and we started doing some uh, mop up along top of the ridge and then I was lookout in this area here that this, uh, we, we uh, third day, I forget what day it was, I guess it was Tuesday. Um, this orange area here had a, had a uh, we were in a different area but this area here, the, it was very steep and some materials rolled downhill, started the fire at the bottom and then it races uphill because you know, of the fuel gets preheated and fire likes to move uphill a lot better than downhill. So then we came in then after this happened the next day to, uh, to put a line around that section, uh, fire line around that section and I was lookout when I started noticing smoke in here the day before we were in, in that area there trying to catch that, that little area. Noticing smoke building up and building up, and finally it, it, it started blowing up. So I, I told the crew to evacuate, 
uh, the half of the crew that was with me to evacuate, get out of the canyon because this thing is blowing up. And if it got down into the canyon, it would have made that run up. So eventually they pulled everybody off the fire because this was really, really intensely burning. And we came up and, and we're getting ready to just burn out along this road uh, in case the fire started running up the canyon. Um, set backfires basically, or we call burnout to get rid of the fuel along the edge. However, they did call in the uh, air tankers, and they were draw or uh, and they were dropping you know, retardant there to try to stop it, which th they were able to catch it before it reached the bottom of the canyon. And so, in the next few days, we put fire lines around. They spent the day putting fire lines around this area here and mopping up, trying to keep it from getting that what they call the horseshoe. This area here, they called that the crater because it was kind of like a little separate canyon up mm -hmm. on the hillside, and that they called that the horseshoe. So, so that, that fire, I mean, we were the only full crew there, which is unusual. I mean, there was a, a half crew, there was another uh, crew, Forest Service crew, that they split in half, and one was, the other ha one half was on this fire, one was on some other fire. But, so it's been, it was the only fire that I, I've been on, that it was, we were the only full crew. They did have some engines, you know, patrolling the edge, and, and um, where the control burn was, putting out any hot spots, and they got a, a masticator, uh, which is uh, like a skid steer with a brush cutter on the front to cut back the vegetation on the edge of this road in case we still have to burn that out. But, but we were able to contain that, so it wasn't an issue. Uh, it was mostly sagebrush and what they call um, pinyon pine and juniper, which is kind of like red, what we'd call red cedar. And so they weren't tall trees, but it was a few areas of thick brush. The sage isn't really thick, but if it does burn quite intensely if there's a strong wind. So, but there was fortunately there's no wind. It's just this area here happened to have a heavy population of uh, pinyon pine and, and juniper that uh, allowed that to really burn up. Had it gotten into the valley, it would have made a quite a run up, but the valley bits, but but it didn't. So, so I, so we were actually going to be pulled off that fire until this thing happened, and then we stayed around and got it. Got the edges fully c contained or cold, you know. Um, it's just uh, this is contingency line, and, but uh, we, we made sure, you know, that the edges were all out. And our last day, we came up in here, tried to get into this area here to check this line, but it was uh, just way too steep. We couldn't couldn't go there. It was too dangerous. There was a little spot fire off the edge. They did send a few people down to look at that. And they did find a, a, a smoldering stump, which you know everyone thought the whole thing was out. But uh, th those guys worked on that for a while and uh, able to get that out to kind of secure that area there. But, uh, but and then we went up and we started you know picking up hoses and flags and stuff like that. It was pretty much out. So. And just by coincidence, the other fire, the, the Green Mountain fire, broke out. And so they said, okay, we got a new assignment for you. You, you know, when they, they called us out, you know, when we were on the line, they said, you, know, you guys will be moving out tomorrow, so you want to come in a little bit early to get packed up and get ready to go. So then we headed over to the Green Mountain fire. And they had, nobody had been on that fire yet. So we, again, we were the full crew. Another crew was going to be showing up. Uh, later that day, um, and they had helicopters dropping water on it. And uh, you understand contour lines yep. on maps? Okay, so there's the top of the mountain. Uh, you can see it's 10,000 feet in elevation in some places. So, um, so their original plan was, you know, what they look at is what they call a big box. All right, so 
So the first thing, they're going to try to keep it small with water, and then we hit do a direct line. But if we needed to, uh, uh, if we couldn't catch it here and there's no other place, then you start looking at what, what out, what's out there that makes a good fire break. And you notice we have a road that goes pretty much all the way around the fire here. So, uh, so that was going to be the uh, contingency line, that if we have to, we'd, uh, instead of trying to put firefighters in danger or put a lot of time and effort trying to get the, stop the fire, in an area you couldn't, and you say, okay, well, this will be our fire line at the base of the mountain, and we'd be doing burnouts along the edge to try to get you know, the fire contained in there. Uh, fortunately, um, the helicopters were able to knock the head down, the fire again started down here and was running uphill. So the first day we, we put in a fire line on what we call the right flank, and then on the second day we put the fire line in on the left flank, and the other crews were working up kind of high up on the heads with the helicopter uh, because their western crews were a little more used to the elevation compared to what we were. And then I was, uh, I was playing lookout. I was up, up in here. Um, one, uh, well, first day I was a lookout on here, which... It's not the ideal spot for a lookout because I had to move when the fire got too intense. No, the lookout's supposed to be in a safe place, but the crews were working down low, and then finally they, we got the line up far enough, and they put posted another lookout up above me because he that guy couldn't see down into the valley, and I couldn't see up over the top, so we had two lookouts. And then the next day I was the only lookout, and I was on this side here, you know, looking across and could see everything but, but the area down here, but that's where we had, had the line was already established down in there. And uh, so, and then you can see on this light area here, this light that was open, it was sagebrush versus timber in this area here. So the fire, because it was at that point burning downhill, when it hit the sagebrush, it pretty much went out because there was no wind pushing it. So our efforts of putting the fire line in the timber and then it hitting the sagebrush and then with the helicopters, we were able to get that under control in, in three days. So and then kept it kept it pretty small and everyone was pretty happy with that yeah. you know, it didn't make the big news because it's only 53 or 55 acres here 53 acres but uh, the uh, the incident commander was very happy that we were able to stop it at that acreage and uh, and we where we were camping is doesn't show on the map but it's uh, oh, up in this area here we went, had to hike in quite a ways uh, to the fire they did have uh, UTVs to haul the chainsaws and you know, the heavy stuff, but uh, we had to carry our packs in. And typically, we, we have probably two gallons of liquid with us, and you know, lunch and fire shelter. So we're running a usually around a 30-pound pack, and at uh, 8,800 8, you know, 8, feet, 8,000 feet, going uphill, you know, first thing in the morning with a 30-pound pack, and you know, it, it, it was it was tough for the first two days, but the third day. You know, we Everyone seemed to get. Most everyone seemed to be acclimated. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that was the hardest part of it? Was the elevation? Yeah, yeah. Because we we were digging fire line, but then you know, and going up steep ground digging digging a fire line isn't too bad because it's slow. You know, you're not running. You know, we we get more winded hiking in because everyone's going at a pretty good pace. Once you start digging, it's a much slower pace. But it, it, uh, at 9,000 feet, even at a slow pace, it was very, very hard because there was just, just no air there. Yeah. And we were lucky that the, uh, I can't remember what the, the buttermilk fire was. I think that was around six or 7,000 feet elevation. So we had a little bit of time to get acclimated, but at 9,800 9, feet, it's a different ball game. I mean, that's 
twice as tall as most of the mountains in the White Mountains. You know, so it's uh, uh, kind of hard to relate to. And <laughs> where where I normally work, very seldom do I go over a thousand feet elevation. So you know, in central New Hampshire here, so. So it, it again one of the reasons why that pack test is important. Yeah. You gotta make make sure you're in shape to get out there. Because yeah. if you're not, you, you're gonna suffer, especially at this elevation. Yeah. What are some struggles that you've seen other firefighters have? Um, well, quite often uh, the there's a lot of foot problems and blisters and stuff because they're just not you know they may have bought new boots and they're not properly broken in. Or they're just not used to working in the, um, you know, in the steep terrain or side slopes, um, and so th there's boot problems. Uh, occasionally, you get people who smoke on the fire crew, and the ones that did smoke, they were they were impacted by the elevation a lot more than those that that weren't that didn't smoke. Um, some of the younger firefighters have a hard time uh, being out of uh, communication. Or their cell phones, or smartphones, or whatever it is, you know, they're they're so used to that, and it, and some of them have had a hard time adjusting that, you know, they can't. Yeah. The smartphone's not working, you know, <laughs> and uh, so that that so that that's something relatively new in the last few years that we see, you know, the phone addicts you know, on the fires, and they can get pretty pretty irritable when they can't talk to whomever they wanted to talk to whenever they wanted to talk to, you know. The, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, let's see, MREs, you know, something, you know, again, you know, sometimes the food isn't there, you know, especially on these initial, what we call initial attacks, the food isn't there. Uh, so you're doing MREs, which fill you up and stuff, and some people speak very poorly of them, I mean, I, I don't have a problem with them, but you know, some people would, would, ra would rather not eat them. But you know, if that's all you got, that you got to eat it to maintain, yep. maintain your strength. So, um, but uh, the the training now that you know th that we do for firefighters, uh, they're pretty much they they have a better idea of what they're getting themselves into. But unless you do it, you you really can't relate to it. You know, you can say I like to camp, but. You know, when you're getting up at 4:30 in the morning and then you know working a 12 to 16-hour day, you know, a lot of the younger kids aren't used to that type of thing, and we notice that they're the ones that are usually falling asleep on the car in the trucks or whatever. You know, they're, they're, they're just not used to those long days type thing. You know, I'm a forester and work outside working in this weather, and so I'm kind of used to the hot weather, and it's actually nice when you don't have the humidity. But we had one one case. We went to Florida. And the younger guy in the crew was really affected by the heat, but he was a logger. And so, well, you know, geez, what? Surprise, you're affected by heat. You're a logger. He said, well, my, my skidder is air-conditioned. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so although he's a logger, he was inside an air-conditioned room all day on his, on his uh, tri skidder tractor there. So so that, that that's another thing, you know, with the advent of air-conditioned, you know, people working inside just suddenly now when it's 90 degrees or mm -hmm. you know in Florida of course it was a little more humid than, than out west here so that that's uh, you know some of the issues that, that I see yeah and what about you know these firefighters leaving their families not being able to communicate does that come up um, they're warned ahead of time that you may not be able to be in communication and again the majority of them would then warn their 
family, friends, spouses, you know, whatever, uh, significant others that, hey, you know, we're going to be out of communication. We, we could be out of communication for a while. And so for example, for the buttermilk fire, I had, I had uh, Verizon and I had good cell coverage in the camp that we were staying in. AT&T people with, people with AT&T didn't. We got to this fire, uh, we were at, the camp was up in here. I couldn't, I had no service, but the AT&T people did. But when I, as I was leaving the, the buttermilk fire, you know, I told my wife, I said, you know, uh, good chance, you know, this, this fire is in the middle of nowhere, I may not be able to get out. So, so as long as they are aware that there's a chance you may not get communication, um, that, you know, it, it isn't an issue, but occasionally something may come up with a family that, uh, you know, that, that you need to be in touch with and you know, stuff like that. But uh, um, the other thing is, you know, the abrupt departure. You know, it's better now. Typically, we get one to two days' notice. It used to be just, you know, a matter of hours that you pack and go, you know, and that. And that, that, that is kind of hard, you know, when you, you're suddenly gone. But now, again, they're a little better, you know, giving, giving us a heads up when we'd be going. So it, it, it helps with the planning. It helps in getting stuff done ahead of time. Yeah. How long have you been married? Uh, 21 years. Yeah. <laughs> and how does she feel about all this? Um, <laughs> she, she knows I like to do it. <laughs> and... Uh, but uh, she thinks that I probably shouldn't be doing it too much longer. <laughs> uh, that, uh, so uh, I mean, the, the uh, you know, I earn I earn more money in the time I'm gone doing firefighting than I do in my regular job. So uh, that kind of kind of makes up for it. Yeah. So, but uh, there you know there are some people that um, just you know oh yeah I'll be fine and then suddenly you know you're gone and out of touch and they. Get, they get nervous and things like that. So there, there have been issues you know, with relationships like yeah. this. So what keeps you motivated to keep going on the trips? Well, uh, one, at my age, at 64, it, it kind of gives me um, the um, uh, a good reason to stay in shape, you know, to maintain a fitness, uh, maintain a fitness level. Um, so... Uh, so that that's one thing. I mean, it just you know it gives me incentive to stay in shape. Uh, two, uh, it you know it must be in my DNA or something. But I mean, you know, it's 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 like I say, a bit of an adventure. And my my little little part. I'm not fighting climate change, but helping to mitigate some of the effects of climate change. You know, protecting a resource. I'm involved with a lot of. I'm on the Town Conservation Commission, Open Space Committee, and kind of dedicated my life to conservation. And this is, you know, w- you know one of the more radical ways of, <laughs> of of protecting the resources, firefighting, and and then and again, it's it's a great great bunch of people to work with. Yeah. Um, and are you planning on going out again next year? Um, I would like to, uh, just just see uh, how it goes. Um, I, I would hope so, but you know, like I, I try not to turn down the trip to Quebec that the New Hampshire crew went on because of my regular job. You know, was just was too busy, uh, and uh, so just you know, I've, I've probably turned down more trips than I've gone on, uh, just because of my work stuff or family mm-hmm. stuff, that type of thing. So. 
So, but uh, I would like to, um, and as far as this year goes, I mean, I'm, I've got a bunch of work ahead of me. If it keeps raining, you know, and I can't do any logging or I can't mock timber, then maybe I'll go again. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, I think, you know, with my workload now, I don't think it's going to happen. And so you have uh, your own company that you're a forester? Well, I, I work, uh, the company is based in Rumney. There's uh, two other foresters up in the, in the Rumney office and then the company, uh, the owner who's uh, in his 80s, in his 80s, in the early 80s. And so he's, he's not in the woods too much, but uh, he still likes to keep his fingers involved. So, But I have kind of my regional office in, in, in Hopkinton in my house and kind of do central New Hampshire and the city Concord being my and town of Bow being my bigger clients mm-hmm. in the area. Yeah. So what's your day-to-day like with that? Well um, lately uh, the trail stuff has been coming. Uh, uh, hi, I, hi, I probably spend more time now on trail stuff than I do forestry stuff for the city of Concord. In uh, like the town of Salem I've done timber sales for them and now they're getting heavier trail use and so that's becoming a, an important thing town of Bedford uh, they have one, one large town forest and I just finished up a major trail project down there so uh, my day-to-day thing is either marking timber or supervising the timber sales you know laying the skid trails out stuff like that uh, trail maintenance or construction uh, doing forest inventory to develop management plans those are the three big things uh, occasionally I'll get uh, the owner of the company is a licensed land surveyor so we'll you know do boundary work blazing and painting boundaries occasionally do surveying uh, mostly compass and tape for woodland surveys but I'll also do deed research to clarify boundaries and things like that um, so that that's kind of covers my spectrum of work and then and then uh, I'm a special deputy forest fire warden with the state and have, have been you know a special deputy since I worked for the state in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And so in um, in our fire season, which is the spring, because the, the leaves from the previous fall and the grasses have dried out, if there's not a lot of snowpack to really flatten it out, that stuff will burn. It doesn't burn deep because the ground's still wet from the snow, but it, it skims across the top. So uh, I will, uh, like in the last several years, I've been manning the fire tower on Mount Kearsage, occasionally on Oak Hill. Um, uh, I do my regular job kind of in the morning, and then we'll go man the fire towers, you know, in, in, the, you know, in the afternoon when typically is when we have the fires. And on the weekends, it's a little bit early. You know, I'd go up there earlier because um, that's when the... Uh, you know, on the, the warm weekends, you know, kids are out camping or people are burning brush or doing cookouts and, you know, 4th of July is a bad weekend because people <coughs> are shooting off fireworks and everything else and stuff, so. So, so I'll, I'll do the fire tower stuff and, and and then if they need help on a fire uh, and I'm not in the tower or sometimes I've done the night shift and, you know, come out of the tower and then go right to the fire mm-hmm. to do the night shift. So what would you say to people who are thinking about wanting to join a fire crew out west or contemplating it? Well, there's uh, quite a bit of stuff online, you know, is, is, you know, to kind of look at that. I mean, that Concord intern that I had with me uh, this summer, uh, she was quite interested in going out. 
uh, and so I kind of got her into the into the, um, the training program and stuff like that. But with school coming up, she couldn't get on a crew, uh, but she's quite anxious to do it next year. So first thing you want to do is to you know, look online with the Forest Service sites about the wild. There's plenty of stuff regarding wildland firefighting. Um, of course, they're going to show you the big flames and the helicopters and all you know the exciting stuff. Uh, but you, know, you got to be willing to you know camp in a tent for a couple weeks and go without a shower for a couple weeks. So we were taking baths with handy wipes. You know, we took what, two showers in the 14 days that we were out there. Um, it's it's primitive living. Uh, you got to be willing to work really hard. I mean, physically, it, it's 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 a tough job. So you got to you know be able or willing to do that. Um, but it, like I said, it, it's quite an adventure. It gives you quite a sense of accomplishment if you can get the fire out. Sometimes that doesn't happen. It's bigger when, when you leave than when you got there. But uh, uh, I don't know. I got I got this theory that. Uh, being able to start a fire was a very in, important ability, cr crucial ability uh, in our early evolutionary days. And so being able to start a fire quickly was a desirable trait, like being a good hunter, a good warrior, and so forth. That gene gets passed on. And uh, unfortunately, pick lighters and matches have made that gene obsolete, and genes don't like to be obsolete. <laughs> So you either become a firefighter or an arsonist or both. But uh, so that's why you know quite often you see firefighters. You know, the, 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 you know, stays in the you know three or four generations of firefighters in the same family. And, uh, um, yeah, I'm the only firefighter in our family, so I don't know. You know, but uh, it's a lot you know, set up a lot like the military. So maybe that that uh, warrior gene is also <laughs> involved. Whatever, but. Uh, why why you like to do it is kind of hard to explain. It's just you know, something that you like to do. Just yeah. like you know why you like to be a reporter. You know different things. So so, uh, so any, anyways, uh, yeah. It's if if you like I say, it gives a good sense of accomplishment. There's a lot of camaraderie. You know with the fire crews. I mean, it can be a miserable time, but uh, the worst it is, it gives you a better story. Next time you get on a good crew, you, you look back and lament that that other, you know, at the at the lousy at the lousy assignments. But you, you never know how they're going to turn out. Yeah. You know, you know. One one assignment we uh, the first day we thought we were going to be we were the first crew there. I mean, others were on their way. We were the first crew there because the first the crew that was supposed to be there their bus broke down, and uh, and. Uh, long story short, we ended up cutting brush along the road for contingency line for two weeks straight. Ne never worked. So that, to me, was probably one of the worst assignments I've been on. But it, you know, and then, but that that one always comes up on these fire crews. Now, remember that one in California? We just cut brush for two weeks. And it is much better than that. You know, so it gives you something to compare things yeah. to. You know, so. yeah. Great. Um, and could you just spell and pronounce your last name for me? Okay, it's Ron Klamarzik. It's K L. E M A R C Z Y K. Great. Klamarzik. Right. Ron Klamarzik. Yeah. Now, if it, in Eastern Poland, the C Z is pronounced Z as in Czar, but if you're from, if I was from Southern Poland, it would have been Klamarczyk, like the C Z in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. But but anyways, it's pronounced either way. But my grandfather came from Eastern Poland, so yeah. it was Klamarczyk. Okay. 
Yeah. Um, those are really all the questions I had for you. Unless there's anything else you wanted to add? No, well, that, that's about it. So. Great. All right, Ron He's been fighting fires out west for about 40 years and yep. 24 trips later and just got back for another one. So yep. thanks for coming in today. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah.